when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. said it was my turn on the podcast welcome to my turn where the waypoint crew talks about movies that are tangentially related to one another this week we're going with my pick discussing hail caesar coen brothers movie from 2016 uh that i made the connection through channing tatum that's that was the only real thing i feel like oh and that is a valid reason (laughs) like the Tatum verse is a beautiful place to be. It truly is spectacular, like the range that this this man has. Um, it's, it's not the only movie that comes up when you Google this, though. When uh, mm. I was looking to watch it last night, trying to figure out, uh, should I? Is this on a streaming service? Do I need to? Do I need to to rent this? And there is a hail, comma Caesar exclamation mark twenty sixteen, mm-hmm. and then also mm-hmm. a hail Caesar nineteen ninety four. What? Caesar is a would-be rock star, but for now, he, pe- he works at a pencil eraser factory. So when he falls in <laughs> love with the owner's daughter, in order to get her, he bets with the old man that he can make $100,000 in six months. Starring Anthony Michael Hall, Bobby Phillips, Leslie Dannon, directed by Anthony Michael Hall. Seems like a movie what? I might want to watch, frankly. <laughs> oh, my God. Wow. Maybe you can circle back around at some point to that. That's amazing. Um... But yeah, uh, Hail Caesar is, uh, honestly, has slowly become one of my favorite Coen Brothers films. And I guess we could start there with uh, what everyone's sort of um, history with the Coen Brothers is and whether or not they'd seen this movie before this week. Rob? So I'm, I'm really interested to hear you say that because, so I... I enjoy this movie. I don't know that I particularly love it. Mm. I think there's like a lot of great moments and asides in hail Caesar. But I think where I've come down is that like, yeah, I don't regard it as one of the, the, the better Coens out there. So like, uh, that it really resonates with you and you connect with it. I'm really interested to get into, uh, more of that as we go along. I think probably my history of the Coen brothers is like, like a lot of folks, uh, you know, they, well, they started to blow up uh, as like leading lights of indie filmmaking when I was a little kid. Right. Like I remember being, uh, you know, not much more than a toddler and watching Siskel and Ebert review Fargo uh, as an exciting <laughs> like, uh, you know, crime film from, uh, you know, the guys who did Blood Simple. And, uh, you know, aren't they really com- coming out now as, uh, you know, real, real powerhouses of indie cinema? And then they become so much more than that. Right. They basically, you know, they they get a lot of independence, but they get studio budgets uh, to start right. making their movies with. They, they really move into that range. And, you know, I like 
I tend to uh, I tend to really enjoy their work. Um, I probably have enjoyed their slightly weirder comedy stuff a bit more. Like, mm-hmm. I, there's a lot I admire about films like No Country, for instance. But I am rarely being like, you know, I want to go watch No Country for old men <laughs> uh, again. That's that's kind of not where I come down. Whereas, um, gosh, the uh, oh. Sorry, I'm blanking. The Clooney movie where they're uh, convicts on the run. Oh, oh brother, we're at that. Oh, brother, we're at that. Yeah, yeah. Like literally, there's like there's never. You know, we saw comfort movies the other uh, day. Yeah, <laughs> there's like never. There's never a day I'm having where it could not be improved by like turning that TV and like, oh, oh, brother, we're at that was on TV. Day instantly better. Yeah, so that's kind of my relationship <laughs> with the with the Coen Brothers, except for one other weird wrinkle, mm. which is I watched Barton Fink way too young. Mm. And you've told the story. Yeah. You've told the story, I believe. <laughs> yeah. But you should do a short you should do a short version of it for the for the purposes of basically this thought it was gonna be a, a comedy of old basically I thought it was gonna be what Hail Caesar is. Mm. A comedy about old Hollywood, uh and all the wackiness and wildness that's associated with the, the motion picture business back in the the forties and fifties was not prepared for Barton Fink's hard left turn into <laughs> violent surreal nightmare fuel uh that is the rest of the movie the movie just moves out of the realm of uh like reality and into the realm of like boshian allegory is the only way i can I put s- it so that's that's kind of my history with the cohen's i still haven't seen that one i gotta I gotta watch it uh patrick what about you i enjoy you know <laughs> like a lot of people I was just as a child sitting around watching Siskel and Ebert <laughs> and just and just it just loved that these yeah. critics enjoyed these this, these acclaimed Coen brothers time to watch their rise as opposed to what I think is the vast majority of people's experiences. The Big Lebowski came out. They had never heard of the Coen brothers and then like went back, maybe saw Fargo, <laughs> so, at least of my age, which I'm in Rob's bracket. I know Rob is built different. We all know this. Yeah. But I was like, but yeah. this people was, saw yeah, absolutely <laughs> the kids I grew up with. Some of my best buddies. Do you know? Do you know what movie we saw like three times in the theaters? Uh-huh. Steven Soderbergh's Traffic. <laughs> we like Shut traffic so much. Rob, we saw that Rob, movie Rob, stories, Rob, you cannot take story at this point. You cannot uh, take stories you reuse and extrapolate anything from them. <laughs> no. They they do. They are not. T- they are touchstones for you. No. And you alone. Um, oh my so, goodness! I, I'm, I, you know, I am like a lot of people. Saw the Big Lebowski, was blown away by it. Had no, that was not an age where I was looking up directors, writers, but I was right on the yeah. edge of that. And I remember, I have no idea why I saw a brother. Where art thou? Because it's not like I was like got to watch the new film from the Coen Brothers. Uh, you know, uh, and. But that became one at a young age, like at, in a college age. I think I'm gonna, maybe I watched it in a college film class or was just plucking it from the from the local place. But like fell in love weirdly with the music in in that in that oh, uh, that movie. All time um, soundtrack. You know, I, I you know people listen to this podcast like know I have an affinity for like <laughs> like very specific like female pop music, but just pop music in general. And so music in a movie can really grab me. And Oh Brother is where yeah. I like clicked on. Like who's 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 making these movies? Um, and ne- I've never gone backwards. Uh, I've seen Fargo. I watched Fargo because the TV show looked killer. So then I went and like watched that, knowing that the first season was going to 
kind of like pick up in this in the same area. But I've never seen anything prior prior to that. Um, but then have more or less kept track with them going forward with two great omissions. One being Burn After Reading, which at some point we'll watch on on this, oh on, my this God. on this podcast because I know people <laughs> love the shit out of that movie and I, I don't know why oh, I, I, I've seen the gifts like I've it's I Brad Pitt in the red tracksuit like oh. I know I I, I I know I know the movie is I know I'd probably love it um uh that said uh I quite liked the Ballad of Buster Scruggs that was the one they did a couple years ago on on Netflix but um Hail yeah. Caesar I think the critical reaction was sort of mixed and so then I just didn't make it a priority and the movie sort of floated away and so this. This watching was the first time that oh, I had nice. taken it in. Uh, and I have to admit, I fall closer to Rob than than Kato in which it feels barely a movie. It feels like a bunch of skits that they put together as an homage to old Hollywood in a way that I find delightful. But I don't know that I got to the end of it and went like, I think I'm going to talk about this movie on this podcast. And then it's going to immediately jettison from my brain other than <laughs> other than. The musical number that I will probably listen to a handful of times because it was pretty goddamn catchy. And there's no a lot games. of great performances in this movie. Yeah. But it's just like I found myself looking at my phone and I was like, ah, shit, I'm having trouble sort of like keep, there's oh, not no. really a plot. <laughs> like there's not really a plot here. It's a, bu- it's a bunch of sort of bits that I find very enjoyable. Um, but I don't know that it like stands up as like w- what I think of as a Coen Brothers movie. But that is also, I think, because they have so many excellent works that that is uh Maybe you think differently if it was a different filmmaker. Uh, what about you, Ren? So uh, I come to the Coen Brothers uh, via uh, Fargo. Uh, I heard people talking about Fargo when I was like younger, and then I was like, I gotta watch Fargo. And then I watched Fargo. I was like, Oh fuck, I really like Fargo. <laughs> um, and kind of that is my entry into the Coen Brothers is is that movie. And then from there, I, I go through a lot of their filmography, um, just kind of on my own time. And I've always. I I like this movie a lot because it is the best encapsulation of what I think one of my favorite things about the Coen brothers is, which is the shopping cart rolling down a hill school of filmmaking where (laughs) Coen brothers movies, I think very frequently feel like, what if you just like put a camera on someone letting go of a shopping cart and it starts rolling down a hill and you're like, Oh man, that shopping carts rolling down that hill. And then suddenly you realize that there's three shopping carts rolling down the hill and you're like, Oh fuck, look at that. Well, I hope nothing bad happens to those shopping carts. And then one of them catches on fire. Uh, and then suddenly there's three flaming shopping carts going down a hill. And then one of them explodes. Uh, and that like that layering of 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 plots uh, and kind of nonsense uh, is it, not nonsense, but like that layering of plots and um well, they're very funny, I, I right? Like it. broadly, they're like very like the movies are like dead, frequently deadly serious. Like they're dark comedies. Like that. That is like my favorites of theirs are are their dark comedies, and I think that's that's what you're getting at there. Is they yes. light a fuse, and then you get to watch it explode in a bunch of different yeah. directions that you might not have expected. Yeah, um, yeah, and so that's I, I I like this movie a lot. I I'm I'm closer to Kata where I I, I really really love um, this like weird absurd movie. Yeah, so um, I kind of fall somewhere in between Rob and, and Patrick as far as like the timeline goes. My first, I think my first actually, my first Coen Brothers movie was Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, which I really enjoyed. Um, but when I saw that, I was at the I was at the moment of in my life of like not really following through on like Oh great, let me look up who that is. Like 
you know, the idea of like the internet was still young enough that it wasn't immediately like, oh yeah, well, I should go look that Right? Like if you, um, like the, what, part of the reason I accredited colleges where I thought maybe this, I like picked this up was that we had this incredible, that's for entertainment. They don't exist anymore. It was this incredible student run uh, uh, a video store, but they would organize things by direct. So like when a movie would come out and be mm. like, Hey, you like this shit? Like, here's you know, he, here's, yeah. here's the other stuff that you might want to watch. And nice. yeah. I credit a lot of like that, that, that sort of curating with allowing me to have like a better sense of like the non Spielbergs of the world. Right. You know, what are the things right. they are making and how should I follow it? Now, this was totally something that someone, cause I was in art school <laughs> uh, I was a in an art magnet program, and so you know this that that's a film in particular is like aesthetically very like striking and uh you know very um all the all the visual arts kids were like talking about it, and like one of them like showed it at a at one of their birthday parties on a DVD that they had, right? Like that's how I first saw that that movie because a lot of uh, Cohen stuff is rated R, and like my parents, as I've told many times before, were super fucking strict about what uh, films I could go see. Uh, so it was, it wouldn't be until I actually got to college that I, like, I, like a friend of mine who really loves The Big Lebowski would be like, What, you've never seen it? This is amazing. Like, let's watch this. And I was like, Oh, wait, the guys who did that made this? <laughs> like, because those two films kind of live in the two, like, they're kind of two spheres for most Coen Brother films, right? There's the like Fargo, um, like I feel like Big Lebowski and Fargo fit in the same area, just in like in different uh, levels of 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 uh, of darkness, <laughs> violence, right? series of violence. <laughs> um, but there's like you know the O Brother, where it's like very obviously almost about filmmaking a certain type of old filmmaking a certain mm-hmm. type of like grand epic uh and, and like it still has their like comedy elements in it but it's different than the type of like thing in Fargo or the Bigabowski where there's this layering as Ren has was mentioning this layering of plots unfolding in a very comedic and then sometimes very violent way um this this film kind of fits for me in an in-between zone Almost, it feels like as we uncover these different layers of this movie, it ends up pulling a kind of um, what's the word I'm looking for? Def- not deflectionary, but like it kind of almost undercuts the. I, was, I would levels. say like diversionary, like sure. it's doing something you don't see coming. Which yeah. is so. I think the thing you're alluding to is. I see like this movie. I'm like, <laughs> this is fine. It's a comedy of of, uh-huh. of old Hollywood, Red Scare, great, great, great. And then also it is a dark brooding meditation on faith and work and (laughs) like, like labor and the soul. And like that, I did not see coming where it's like, Oh wait, so this, this is like weirdly enough of a companion piece with things like, uh, you know, a serious man, for instance, which feels like it is operating completely different sphere. But then through the, producer character uh played by josh brolin who throughout this film is trying to keep all these various like hilarious pots from boiling over yeah uh the thing that he is struggling with is is his faith uh and his understanding of like his place in the universe yeah yeah this this movie is definitely 
very much about faith and belief. Well, people, what people have belief and faith in, and uh, in a lot of great ways. Uh, one of the funniest early scenes, honestly. Well, it's also about how people's beliefs uh, contradict their, the, the, the way they live very often, right? Uh, we get a lot on contradiction here. And like from the bat, we open up on uh, Eddie, Eddie Mannix in confessional, being like, it's been only a day since my last confessional. Uh, which is way too often, 24 hours. And what he's confessing about is sneaking some cigarettes, right? Smash cut to he's on the job pulling a girl that works for his, for his studio out from like taking some like slightly raunchy pictures and immediately slapping her across the face to like slap some sense into her. And like this, this view of like what at first you think is a very, very sort of like, you know, someone's that pious that they're like saying, like need think they need confessional for uh, fucking cigarettes, like stealing, like bumming a cigarette when they said that they would quit to their wife, to immediately like enacting violence on on a woman in order to like get her to do what he wants is like a very stark contradiction. That's great. You know, shit, I'm going to come out of this liking this movie more than I came into it. Uh, I can already feel that coming because the thing is, you're right. You're, you're set up with what appears to be a contradiction is that he's this devout man of faith who feels this profound uh, like Catholic guilt yeah. over his transgressions. But he's a fixer. He, throughout this fil- film, he is a fixer. Say, he it's is, not his studio. Which would be like, no, no, no. Like, he's not the head. He's the. It, it, yeah, it's a movie about being cogs in a machine. Yes. And what is your soul? What, what is what is your soul and worth? when you recognize your or don't recognize that you're the cog. <laughs> yeah. Yes, absolutely. Um yeah, and like uh we 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 return to this idea of the contradiction and like it gets even put out more explicitly later on in the scenes with all the communists, you know, talking about the dialectics of the whole film. But to to set us up, uh we have Eddie Mannix, the uh um what's the, what's his actual uh the head of head physical of, production. Head of physical uh, production which, which- is yeah. It's also worth noting Eddie Mannix was a real person. This is a film right. loosely based on a real fixer, uh, producer slash fixer, who notably uh, is suspected of killing multiple people. He's, <laughs> he is suspected of like having murdered people oh for this God. job, um, which is which is worth noting here. I don't know. I'm curious. I feel like this Eddie Mannix of the movie might not go that far, but he'll step up <laughs> to that line. You know, <laughs> it feels like not too far off, honestly. Um um but yeah we 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 come in on 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 him and um what what we learn very quickly is that the main production the the movie within a movie that we're going to be focusing the most on is a, a film called Hail Caesar and he, uh one of the earlier uh scenes is him with a rabbi and three priests talking about the depiction oh of god, god. uh a fucking hilarious it's scene so good an amazing and hilarious scene that also sets up um this uh, another it, like it immediately throws us into another contradiction the idea the theological idea of god being one and also split. There's a really great like who's on first bit going on here. Um and the the rabbi uh just beautifully being like this is not really God. I don't care. Uh almost standing in for um the Cohen brothers themselves, honestly, being like 
it doesn't matter. Um, but the, but the real like precipitating crisis is that he's making this sword and sandals yeah. Roman times Christian epic. Well, and it's, starring, and it's the big picture for the year, right? Yeah. Like I think I think part of what's so interesting about this era that is hard to grasp if you aren't familiar with this era of Hollywood, and it's still true that there are production lots like you have like a marvel they they own a bunch of property um and things that are simultaneous happening as they film a bunch of overlapping like mcu stuff down in atlanta but broadly like we are away from the days in which um you can have 12 15 20 productions like when they pull back and which is essentially i think everyone's like you know, it's essentially the Warner lot like that mm-hmm. in people's like mind. Have you seen Animaniacs like a water <laughs> tower? Like they are they are definitely playing off the aesthetics of what we we think of as this Warner lot where it's a bunch of just factories that inside is producing a film. And like so much about what is interesting about this movie is watching what is it like for someone to be spinning all of those plates uh, and these different uh, factories at the same time and what happens when pieces of those start falling out. Well, it, it, it is a film about the end of this system, specifically. Mm-hmm. Like, this, this is a film set in 1951 as the studio system is about to collapse, right? And that is, like, that is, for me, so much of what this movie is about is about the decl- what does it mean to be a key figure in a declining empire, right? Like, what, what do you do? And the conclusion that Mannix comes to is you just, you know, you do your job in the empire, but, like... It's an industrial system. You don't take you don't take the easy way out and just take the money. No, terrible decision at the end of that film. Oh my god! The industrial system of this like production, like that's what I love about it is like it's breaking, and you can you can see it breaking. Having Hobie Doyle play that character in um, "Merrily We Dance" is such a bad decision but this but the mode of production which they have created this industrial mode of of like film production is dependent on very strict time schedules that precipitate decisions like that um and leads to needing a guy who can like you said patrick spin all of these plates simultaneously well because they also own these people like almost quite literally um like the way that the way that the whole hollywood system worked where you were signing essentially contracts equivalent to athletes <laughs> where mm-hmm. you were just under a studio's direction um, and just in a bunch of pictures while you were, uh, you know, uh, while you were popular and, and the studio needed you as opposed to things being, you know, negotiated on a, on a per picture sort, sort of basis. And it's just, it's that, that, that part, that part is especially wild, even as I'm aware that that's how the, the system used to work. Yeah. It, as as well as like the production timelines, the timelines of these productions are so wildly divorced from the way that we like understand current film production. Uh, and like the, the like last minute swap in of Hobie Doyle, like again, points to the fact that this is at its core, an industrial system that is designed to take in inputs and give consistent outputs. Yeah. Um, and, there's, and yeah, please got him. I was just going to say there's something, um, there's something about so the uh, Mannix is on a call with the actual studio head from New York, who is the one who brings up the idea to give to put Kobe in because brings up is a generous interpretation yeah, of that conversation. But, <laughs> yeah, but he's like, you know, people like people, uh, people like that Hobie guy, don't they? Uh, and you know, immediately you can tell Maddox is like, that's, that's a horrible idea, but, uh, we don't have any better ones. So, um, but the, they, they talk about how they could get 
uh, certain people if they traded certain people away and how that's not worth it immediately putting like this sort of you know they the way that Patrick was saying they own these people and like needing to like use them as like currency essentially to to get the people that you need um really sets up the the hierarchy that's happening in this industry um but yeah also, also shout shout out to what what is it? i forgot what the what was the the character's name that we were just talking about Hobie. Hobie. Hobie Hobie Doyle. Doyle. who is look so i i i like <laughs> this actor uh, uh alden ehrenreich yep. is that how we're yeah uh Got kind of a bad rap. I thought he played a perfectly fine Han Solo in a movie yeah. that was a creative misfire. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't think you come away from that movie being like so, so much was put on that actor's shoulders that was not this should not have been the responsibility. Yeah. Like it was a, a botched production, a botched, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> explain the dice. All, this is all to say I had not I've not really seen much of what he has done otherwise he hasn't done a whole lot um um after solo in this film he fucking rips in this movie like he is a revelation like like the the range that he has in this film and the way he plays like that moment on set and on on the you know uh that on the picture that that uh ren was talking about is just like i was every scene every time the camera cut away from him I was upset because my favorite parts of the film, mm-hmm. other than George Clooney kidnapped by the commies, was <laughs> was, was just him. Every do time. anything like just you know what me like that girl. <laughs> I want to watch you spin that noodle too. Yeah. Like he's just so effortlessly yes. charming and funny and interesting. Uh, just a I really had to call out Truly. like that performance yeah. in general. It was really like a plus. Truly, his spectacular. I love the coming in on him doing some absolutely wild stunts on the on the set. Yeah! Amazing. Get on that horse, boy. Like doing a fucking spin Do you trick need me to on go the again, tree, sir. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I, I think I think I think I can get the spin a little bit better. So earnest yes. about doing that handstand again. Oh, like such when a... he couldn't say the word. <laughs> when he couldn't could say the phrase. Like and they were uh. back like back and forth for Listen, a minute what did it were so simple <laughs> what what did it were so simple it's uh, it's so good like it's <laughs> and like as a collection of skits like this is pointing to the fact right. that, like as a collection of skits this movie is astounding yeah that like every i don't think there's a skit in this movie that did not land for me <laughs> the it, it, it's incredible and i like I, I i again and um, I, I hope that it's not necessarily sometimes I'll, I'll do this, but like I see the connection here immediately with him as uh, another like in, inherent contradiction within himself. He's an actor who cannot act, right? He is he is a movie he's a star who, yeah, who a can't or a star, yeah, who can't can act, <laughs> right? Can sing. Well, and, and in some ways, like so, the, the funny thing is like Hollywood is full of characters like this, mm-hmm. uh, where like I mean like. My read on Hobie is that he's primarily standing in for Audie Murphy, uh, who is a like, look up, look up Audie Murphy, uh, won the Congressional Medal of Honor uh, in World War Two for killing a lot, a lot. of German troops, yep. like uh, <laughs> one of the most astonishing warriors uh, in U.S. history. But then after the war, they're like, you know, we got, we got a genuine, genuine bona fide war hero here. Uh, and he's, you know, good looking. What can we do with him? We can, we can put him in movies and he, you know, he's in a biopic about his experiences. Uh, but mostly I think he gets like sort of known as like kind of a, he plays like this singing cowboy type character, sort of a Roy, mm. Roy Rogers type, uh, type persona. 
and has a really successful career without ever necessarily becoming that good an actor. But the Hollywood system, like there was pla- there were places for people to be stars right. where like, are you a good actor? No. Are you a good dancer? Yes. There's an entire career for you. Nobody wants right. to watch Gene Kelly act. People would line up around the block to watch Gene Kelly dance in Gene Kelly movies. That's what you were there for. Right. Fred Astaire is kind of a weird one because he actually was a pretty good actor yeah, in addition yeah. to what he could do. But yeah, like that's the other thing this this movie kind of brings out is that, uh, you know, in some ways it's like, you know, you hear this about uh, basketball in like the 70s where like basketball teams didn't necessarily ha- need to have good basketball players on them. They just needed big dudes who could be mean. Uh, Hollywood Studios didn't necessarily need actors right, uh, to make these movies to, to Ren's point about like the way the system finds the thing you're good at and we will massage the rest. But it's so fragile. It is. It is so fragile. And and the people who run it do not understand the mode of production that they have created. Like that is that is one of my like the the shank details that his he's so convinced that you can <laughs> put that round 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 peg into a square hole, right? right? Because he thinks that every production is the same production. Because for him, it's they are production. right. They are consistent. Yeah. Right. They are. It is production. They are. It is a system that produces consistent outputs, and those outputs are movies and like. They don't care if the art is good. And like, in some ways, I think that like one of the things I love about Hobie is that like Hobie cares about his job a lot. Yes. He wants to do a really good job. He is deeply invested um, in performing well um, to the point where like he feels the need to hunt down um, a, a group of, again, communists to find um, uh, George Clooney's character. It is it is it is incredible. Yeah. Um uh yeah, after after the uh the 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 Hobie getting transferred, uh which uh, another thing uh, that like kind of clues us into how like how much these people are kind of owned by their studios <laughs> when he gets told that he's being put on that number, he's also being told like the studio's changing your image. Um yeah. you're picking up uh, uh Carlotto Valdez tonight for the for the opening of your new show. Like they don't even get to make choices about their uh, social outings, really. At a certain point, they're just like being told, like this is what you have to do for the good of the studio, which also uh, ties into uh, the next uh, one of the next scenes with uh, the uh, Scarlett Johansson's character Deanna. Um, uh, uh, we get a, a pretty uh, um wild uh uh like synchronized swimming uh intro to her character um where um after the 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 scene is over she throws her like tiara at the back of the orchestra guy's head and it is um it's a good throw frankly yeah honestly like, she hit that mark. The shot you know <laughs> boom i clearly had clearly done this before and uh we learned basically in the scene that uh, she's pregnant, and the reason that Maddox is visiting is to kind of remind her, like, "Hey, if you're gonna have this kid, you have to ha- you have to be married, right?" Uh, another one of these um, setting up the this this sort of uh, the the kind of moral stakes for Maddox as like again being like supposedly a very faithful Catholic, but also like his worry here is not that she's going to have this kid out of wedlock in right. any sort of moral sense. It's Bad PR for the studio. So Mannix, uh, the the historical figure, um, uh, had a had two marriages. 
um, the second of which was uh, to an actress um, who he met during a production, uh, and both of them had affairs for about 10 years, but refused to divorce because they were devout Catholics. And so... (laughs) Like that is again, that is the the to a, a callback to the guy himself who lived this very compromised life. Well, and then, you know, the, the, like a underlying theme uh, for for this character is uh, well, is it immoral if you're if you're just the cog in the machine doing your job? Well, you're just doing your job. Yeah. You're not doing anything immoral. You're doing your job. Um, you know, <laughs> that goes to a pretty dark place pretty quickly when you start extrapolating what that means. But I mean, this is also a film in which they have a. Uh, a incredibly funny conversation about how do we have Scarlett Hansen's character adopt their own child? Oh um, well, you just give it away for a couple of days and then you can adopt it. Yeah. And that little bit at the end when the lawyer goes something like, I'm really excited about this. this one. Is, yeah, like, this, oh, is this is really breaking. You know, ground. It, it, <laughs> well, yeah, because my guess is they're broadly speaking, dealing with actors and actresses fucking each other. And mm-hmm. like, how do they deal with affairs? And like, this is a, this is a new puzzle. Uh, to solve. Uh, but I think, you know, contrast it against, you know, going to confess your sins. Like, none, yeah, none of, as you point out, none of those sins involve the act of what they're doing day to day. Because right. that is just ticking off a box. This is just, in order to keep this machine running, I got to do this. But the thing that actually keeps me up at night is that my wife thinks I'm not smoking anymore. But I, still but I think crucially, like, one of the things right through this film is, like, for a while there, you're thinking, like, that there's a bifurcation here, a contradiction that like, he's not, there's not a unified person here. And that's kind of what's, what's driving some of the spiritual strife. And mm. one of the kind of remarkable things. Well, the, the thing end, is, like, is he actually guilty about smoking? I don't think he is right. He's, it's oh, a he I know. I think, he I don't is. know. I, it seems, I it think seems what, very because we'll, we'll get to this when we get to the Lockheed, yeah. the Lockheed meetings. But I think that is probably part of the linchpin of where his decision ends up going. Right. But, but, I, but I think what part of the payoff, though, is like what's going to reveal this, like the, the internal division you assume is there because of the iniquity that he deals with uh, versus his like Catholicism. It it turns out he squared them completely uh, and identifies like his role within the studio with his role in a weird way as like being a faithful and devoted servant of God. And also like he loves the work that he does. Like, like part of the other thing for this character for me is that like, he doesn't just love the work. He, he is the only person who can do this. Like I, part of the, like the, the idea of, of like dialectic and like Marxist theory running through this film is that like, he has an uncompromised relationship to his labor. He loves what he does fundamentally and he's good at it. This is what he mm-hmm. was made to do. He is, he is the like, there are multiple forms of alienation, but like he is not unalien—he is not alienated from the actual act of his work, even a little bit. It is what he does. It is what he is built to do. And when he goes home, he cares about his family. Yeah. Uh, and then goes back to work. Yeah, totally. Um, but forgets to call about his kid in the right, baseball team. Right. Um, he cares. There's, there's, there's get, so many. Know. There's mm. so many. There's so many spinning plates though going on in this movie. There's ca- there's caring, <laughs> and then there's performative caring. Yeah, yeah. You don't. You never see the kid. No, we do. We do. Bre- uh, Bre- let's very, briefly. Very right? briefly. Yeah. 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 Briefly. yeah. It doesn't count. <laughs> <laughs> um. Uh. Anyways, yeah. Going back to uh, Hail Caesar, we get um uh, George Clooney as the kind of charismatic. Uh, lead on Hail Caesar. Uh, you see him doing a scene 
and uh, two extras being very cagey at this point. One of them spikes his drink uh, in order to set up the uh, the the main uh, sort of through line plot of him being kidnapped by a group of communists. Um, uh, uh, George Clooney is just amazing here in how he plays this character and uh, really the kind of different performances that he puts on throughout like the first scenes that we see him, some of the dailies that Mannix watches later, and eventually the final speech that he gives, uh, the kind of different levels of conviction that each of them have subtly and how they show uh, how the the like separate the separate how separate performance is from like his real you know his actual self and his actual understanding of what he does i think he it's it's a, he's done a really good job like just a really funny um uh, and great performance um uh the um after yeah he gets kidnapped and we we kind of like they slow roll that part for for a little bit as people start to notice uh that he's missing but at first you know Maddox thinks the usual uh we've got like he goes on benders and such right sends out which, uh, yeah yeah which is by the way i think contributes to maybe why i found this movie so now if I, as i sort of relate to it as it's a series of like almost like sketches uh it makes more sense but the way this movie was marketed was it was entirely about this kidnapping right like the, the yes. like the way this movie was pitched was it was a crisis at the studio because their star uh in in their tentpole picture is abducted midway through shooting That's so funny and all hell's the, gonna uh, break the loose. movie's not that, about that the movie's like 20 percent interested in that and That's, mostly is... through the through the lens of like watch the most like frivolous and self-absorbed dude imaginable mm-hmm. be taught communism yeah be taught marxism be taught about the dialectic <laughs> I mean, uh it's just uh george Cleary does an amazing job here honestly it's so funny to watch him like say back um these kind of uh um theoretical uh uh, structures telling uh, the professor, I forgot, Dr. Maddox or something, uh, t- uh, uh, talking about who benefits when somebody asks him to uh, shave their back and try to just apply that theory onto a very personal thing where that theory is obviously not meant to be applied that way. Uh, it's just very funny. Um, oh, I, I, I also, when he, when he wakes up during kidnapped, part of what I loved about how Clooney plays that is they play themselves completely unsurprised that they yeah. would wake up in a place mm-hmm. that they don't mm-hmm. know. And <laughs> as you, as it dawns upon you that they don't know where they are, they don't seem to be panicking, just sort of rolling with it down the hall. Yeah. One of the Hollywood people. Well, yeah, I might've shown up on a couch. Someone probably got me here. It was just, this has happened mm. before. Unsurprising. Yeah. 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 yeah very good. Actually, right now would be a good time to take a real quick break. Uh, If you're listening to this on the free feed, you'll hear some ads. But if you're on Waypoint Plus, you won't hear anything except for a little music sting. You can go to waypointplus.com if you don't want to hear the ads. Be right back. (laughs) 
when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. And we're back. Um, We're just catching up with George Cooley's character, Baird, waking up in a in the in the study group in the group of communists but uh actually there was one small thing that i i missed here that we should uh quickly uh talk about because right before that scene uh manix has his first meeting with lockheed a headhunter from lockheed is trying to uh poach him get him to come on over um and <laughs> uh, uh kind of uh interestingly points out uh the industry that you're in where's the future there talking about films as you know tvs are on the rise and obviously this being in a movie in the year of 2016 <laughs> the the industry has to fundamentally change at this point and it is changing but it doesn't go away um and neither of course does Lockheed martin uh the he he's trying to convince him to come over and one of his cells is basically like look at how big this h bomb is uh which is terrifying uh manix himself even says uh calls it armageddon um which i think uh it's just a really great setup for uh kind of the decision he makes up at the end of of the film but i uh, wanted to put a put that uh in there to percolate for later um um yeah so we get uh bared with all of the communists and at a certain point we're just like the movie just goes into full like <laughs> we're explaining marxism to you now um through uh through the lens of uh Baird, uh, who gets easily wrapped up in this, but also arguing about it because they're very much like a group of like they're a uh red spy cell, but also like a awkward group of faculty. Um, yeah. there's a movie called Ball of Fire where a nightclub singer, I think it's Ball of Fire, uh, where a nightclub singer hides out from her like gangster boyfriend. Uh, with a bunch of it's like it's like Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, but the Seven Dwarfs are all uh, liberal arts faculty, and one of them is Gary Cooper, and of course she falls in love with Gary Cooper. And that the the the, <laughs> the the bad part of this movie is they try to sell Gary Cooper as a bookish professor. That's not happening. That is not in Gary Cooper's gift. But uh, this reminded me a lot of that of this whole like subgenre of comedy where. A bunch of unworldly uh, head in the clouds academics have to deal with someone who is a star of some sort mm-hmm. uh, and, and sort of try and relate their world to that of someone who just enjoys a lot of like sex, success and privilege. Yeah. Um, and, and I think the, the movie's like playing around with that here, too. Yeah, totally. 
Um, we also obviously get a callback to uh, the earlier scene where they're talking about the sort of duality of uh, Christ uh, with the phrase man is split, talking about the kind of dual functions of uh, the institutions, uh, the economic structure of, of, of man under, you know, a Marxist dialectic. And, uh, you know, it's just kind of circling around to these all these different contradictions um uh being I, that, but I, think, I think there's i think yeah. and there's also you know they're you know they're kind of very explicitly in the scene where they're talking about the different writers and you know uh what they worked on and how people aren't aware that they worked on it um and even like red scare aside like i think there is an undercurrent of this film of like the artistry of the people who build the things that you watch um and understanding the people that go into making it like there are several wide shots of the productions of these yeah. where you get to see like the key grips and the lighters and like the whole set of a film. And granted, like that stuff is different these days, <laughs> um, but, but it's not that different. And I, I think there is in here also a celebration of what does it mean to make a film? Like what go, what goes into that? Um, and that it's more than just, you know, they use, you know, again, it's very funny that the movie promotes Clooney because that's the fastest way to market the film. And yet one of the themes of the film is like, well, like all the people that make it under that allow Clooney to do the thing that they do um, is, you know, certainly a, a, a bullet point of what the, the film is trying to get across. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's just like, just, if you, can't, if you can't destroy capitalism, at least give people credit for the things they contributed to. <laughs> right. This is a very funny, like uh, the idea, which I think is largely understood to not be like possible. But at one point the, 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 um, the like uh Stanford professor uh who who has joined this group of uh Hollywood writers to talk about uh communism says uh your studio for instance is a pure instrument of capitalism as such it expresses the contradictions of capitalism and can be enlisted to finance its own destruction um which sounds funny these days knowing that largely uh institutions that work within capitalism can uh wholly in like like this movie spouting a bunch of communists like ideal ideology things like andor which is more recent right like having so a I, lot yeah, of I wanted to, okay yeah yeah i wanted yeah i wanted to bring up like this movie touches upon some like a conversation that has happened i haven't watched andor i've been waiting for it to finish so that i can oh my god through the whole thing no my god um, but um, <laughs> watch andor <laughs> you know one of the one of the one of the the the, the, the some of the discourse around that uh, series has been uh, a tension between the celebration of well, let me set up what the movie says. The movie says that well, we started by trying to put in Marxist ideology into the stories and into, themes of the films, right. thinking that like that would be enough to sort of seed it in the broader culture. Well, that didn't work. Um, and then they're going to they're taking more aggressive means. Um, Direct action. The dis- some, of the, some of the discourse around Andor is like, wow, isn't it like amazing? That this anti-fascist uh, television show is so clear about what it's saying, and then people pointing out, well, it's made by Disney. So if they're just like at the end of the day, if they're just launder, if they're 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 uh, essentially co-opting these ideas to like to just make money off them, is that actually doing anything akin to direct action? And I think that I think that's an interesting. Uh, kind of mark between these two periods of time right. that, the, that they're discussing. The, these characters also, uh, based on the setting of the film, like exists at a point before 
a particular set of like Marxist theorists have gained like major prominence and the exact thing that we're talking about becomes generally accepted like doctrine. Right. So like Deleuze and Qatari are two theorists who basically, this is an extreme oversimplification of a lot of arguments, basically argue that one of the f- key functions of late capitalism as, a, as, a, as an institution is to basically induce micro rupture and create small points of rupture to then heal back over it to make a stronger, uh, more stable version of the thing. So you have these, you know, the little victories uh, or the little breaks in the system that can then um, prevent larger, more complete rupture. Um, And I think that like, that is what we're talking about here, but it's also worth noting that like eventually one of those theorists gets to the point where they're like, yes, individual acts of revolutionary rupture uh, will be sealed over by capitalism, right? But those are the moments where you have an opportunity to build something. And eventually, mm-hmm. if you take that opportunity, uh, if you recognize that opportunity, you can actually build something new. Um, and it's like, again, that is something that I think about a lot when it comes to like this mode of theory um, that this, this film is like talking through. Yeah, totally. It's like the, it's always been like the, the you know, the contradiction between the, the things existing within the capitalist system that try to um, uh, talk about capitalism, never really being able to escape that system itself. So like, are they inherently compromised by it? Um, And I think there's, you know, there's, it depends obviously on, on, on the, on the work of art itself, but there's lots of ways that uh, depending on who's making it and who, who are the people with their hands on the kind of creative levers you get things that kind of break outside of that uh, structure enough to make certain points that maybe may or may not stick. That's the real thing. That's the real hard, the real hard thing is like right. how, is it, is it, you how know, much I of mean, these things. Like, uh, yeah, if you just make money off of it, is it actually seeding a ideology and theory? You know, like did Marvel make Black Panther because we should have diverse characters in our lineup? Or they think they can make a bunch of money off of black audiences because it was suddenly profitable. Yes. And it's like, well, <laughs> that still makes Black Panther, T'Challa, important. But what is that? You know what I mean? Like, that's all on that same spectrum is like, do you, do these do these ideas only become seated and allowed by the corporate overlords when it becomes, you know, I guess to, to Ren's point of like, it can be sort of like the microburst uh, that you just sort of squash out or it just becomes profitable. Um, but then it's just seen as entertainment as opposed to like anything serious. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's one of the things that this uh, uh, circles back around to too is like the function of of films as pure entertainment and trying to be devoid of like ideological like stances, uh, which we we get back to at near the end when uh, Max gives a, a sort of speech about what why you make movies why you why you why why Baird is going to do his job. Um, but, uh, for now we're, um, we get a quick, uh, 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 aside, uh, with Mannix, um, having gotten a ransom note, uh, meeting with, um, oh, what's her name? Uh, Thora or Thessaly? Yeah, Uh, yeah, Thora. (laughs) I don't know. I forget which one was first. The gossip. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the two competing twin gossips. Yeah. Yeah. Um uh basically coming to Baird to let him know that they're gonna uh publish these columns, you know, it's adding another layer onto his day of just like 
great. Now I have to deal with these two different stories getting out. One of them is uh, referred to an old film on on wings as eagles, which has that <laughs> great, a really ridiculous, just like bird call whenever anyone says it in this movie, which is just dumb and perfect to me. Um, and the other one just being about where is Baird today? Like where, what he, it's gotten out somehow already that he's missing. Um, I think at this point we basically get back, uh, uh, we get a, a scene with Hobie and, uh, Mannix where, Max is trying to <laughs> stuff a bunch of money into a into a suitcase while talking to Hobie about how he's doing on on the new set. Um and he he ends up telling he ends up telling Hobie the truth about what is going on here. Uh possibly just looking for someone to bounce ideas off of because he feels like he it, it's it's he's in a rough spot and he's unsure where to Move we're forward. in a tight spot. We're, shit, we're uh, in a tight spot. Um, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I kind of read it as like, I mean, there's something about Hobie yeah. that like everyone kind of believes in this guy over yeah. the course of the picture. That, He's like, just a good, good down-earth yeah. kid, you know? Um, Which, I mean, which comes from like, yeah, like well, in, in, in a scene later we learn that he was actually a ranch hand. He was, uh, you know, uh, 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 a wrangler and um, got picked up in, into the like whole Hollywood scene kind of sideways through just doing that sort of work right um, which gives him uh, you know a, a kind of particular perspective that is different from a lot of the other people in the industry um, uh, then we get Channing Tatum Tatum and his uh uh <laughs> gay sailors uh routine uh which like there's always uh there there has been like kind of i don't know maybe i i haven't seen uh uh enough of these to like really say this but it feels like this is more explicitly making homosexual oh, jokes yeah, than yeah, most yeah, of yeah, these I mean, old yeah. ones well i feel like there was I always mean, a little bit of that in there like people understood, lamp, but like when, when Channing but Tatum is, is trying to squeeze through the two yeah. sailors towards <laughs> the end i was I, like the movie, the movie sits explicitly. on that beat for a moment and i was like oh we're not okay okay all yeah, right no we can, they're gonna continue on then yes they're gonna continue um and it's like for me some, something something about that is like also pushing at uh you know, uh, we end up learning that uh, one of the the sort of threats that uh, Thora is making early on is to expose uh, that Baird is uh, had had sex with Lauren Lawrence, the 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 director, uh, with an exquisite the- performance by Christopher Lambier, just absolutely delicious as that director, just <laughs> wonderful. Wait. Who? The Highlander himself. No. Raiden from Mortal Kombat. No. Pretty sure? No, that's fucking what's his face? Are you doing the Ray the, the Ray Fiennes character, Kata? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm talking about the Rain Fiennes character. Oh, sorry, 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 sorry. I was thinking I was thinking about a sequence later. No, okay. no, no, yeah. You're yes. Um No, the the the, the director directing this this scene was is who you're talking about, yes. 
Christopher, Christopher okay. Lambert. So I was right. I am right. I I was making reference to. I was skipping okay. ahead to like this is you know there's like this kind of like explicit homosexuality happening in this yeah. in this dance picture that um, right kind of contradicts the fact that what they're being threatened with in the end is outing that uh, George Clooney's character is gay and has has had sex with the director and that's how he got mm-hmm. his first role supposedly. Um, and it's just like another one of these like uh, moral contradictions that is held within the the thing. Like they're they're having these, they're trying to like constantly have their cake and eat it too. It's just like, oh, we can't, you know, that's un. You you can't actually say that they're gay, but like we can make these jokes about it, right? Um, and um, and then yeah, we Part- we get the 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 realization here in this scene that uh. Christopher Lambert, who is directing this 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 dance scene, uh, who is the the father of Deanna's uh, child, uh, is himself married, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which means he can't be the one, and they have to find they have to find a different loophole in order to get Deanna out of the situation she's in. Um, I, I was I really enjoyed how long the the dance number itself went on because it long. very much seemed like. An excuse, like sometimes when you see these films that are made by filmmakers who love film, mm-hmm. it is an excuse to make a film that you can't make. Um, yep. You know, if you're Spielberg, you can just say, I'm going to make a West Side Story movie that's not going to make any money <laughs> because I'm Spielberg. Yeah. Um, I've made you billions and billions of dollars. And the Coen brothers are, you know, they don't get, they, they can make broadly probably the movies they want to make, but they don't get the, the budgets and blank checks in the same way that Spielberg does. And yeah. so, you get a real sense in this film that this entire sequence, which is entirely too long. I mean, not in a bad way, right? But like it feels relative to like Scarlett Johansson's like scene where we're like seeing an aquatics, yeah. you know, uh, like stunt spectacular. Like that's just sort of a setup. And then we get to the the next sort of like plot and character beat. This goes on. This is like the, the Coen brothers said, fuck it. Like we're we're do, we're doing an actual dance number for one of these films yeah. that probably means a lot to them as people who are appreciators of you know the entirety of cinema, and you just see them reveling in this opportunity because like you know even when they, they, they there's really remarkable use of like seeing Channing Tatum actually mm-hmm. do like mm-hmm. the stunts like when they're when they're like pulling again who knows how much is also CGI trickery I don't I don't know like but like he can dance see, like. He can he dance. Can dance. I, I was reading, I believe, that he trained to try and do all the tap dancing by himself and ultimately was not able to do it and had to work ah, with a like a, a stunt <laughs> double. But like really put in the work to try and do it. But like, you know, when that broom comes over, I I clap my hands <laughs> like, yes, like let's go. Yeah. I don't even really like these sorts of films, but I want to watch it here and I want to watch Shani Tatum do it. Um and I, I was I couldn't help but just guffaw at the Coen brothers saying we're just going to spend we're going to do the whole thing. a solid 10 minutes doing a real dance number in this in this film. Good for them. Well, and it's, it's true because like it doesn't even the way it's choreographed. Like it's not how you would have shit like in the, the, the picture within the picture. You're not going to useful shots off this shot. We see no. things that there's no way like the, the camera that they're <laughs> supposedly <laughs> using could be capturing. Yeah. Uh, Absolutely. But I mean, but you know, that's all part of uh, tons of musicals do show within a show type stuff that like runs around in the same stuff where it's like at a certain point, you just discard the fact that like in the playhouse, they're supposedly doing this. None of this would make any sense or work. Doesn't matter. We want to do the show the big number this way. And I think it it, it does. You know, it, it's 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 so much fun because, uh, you know, again, 
you know, in the background, you do have this, uh, you know, the, this, this scandal that Maddox is, is, is covered up with, uh, like homosexuality. And then also you have a studio system that makes like pictures that are just like gleefully homoerotic. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) and like joyfully gay at one of those repressed points in like American culture. Yeah. And like, you know, tons of movies like this existed. Like, you know, I think this is probably most directly uh, channeling anchors away. Uh, But there's also follow the fleet where it's just like a whole lot of like. Guys being dudes in musicals (laughs) and like there's there's nothing there's nothing weird about it. Uh, You know, it's just they're they're all just buddies. They're just any dames out here. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) At some point, dames will be introduced, but never like. Always is like, you know, more as reassurance. They're all straight. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Also, Tatum is just funny. Like the yeah. he, he's just such a funny physical performer. Like the choreography, they give him the outright like sheer absurd contortional horniness of this performance. Yeah. Is so much funny. There's, ma- so there's magic funny. mic energy in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like in, in this, this like 1950s um, dance number. Yeah. And, and I think maybe that's just, you know, I'd be so curious to know how much of that is him, how much of that is like, you know, how, you know what I mean? Like I could see there being kind of a push and pull. Like you just see a lot of when he acts like this as a performer, like this is just what he does. And um, how much of that was just like leaned into relative to what they were actually trying to get out of it. If you were to just put like a blank slate of a, a performer or what was on the page. Yeah. Um so yeah, with the with the uh uh reveal that uh Arn is already married, he's gotta find a different different fix for uh Deanna's situation, PR situation, at the same time also now dealing with what if these stories get out and also dealing with where is Baird actually? Um uh uh the, 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 I lost where I was, sorry. Um Baird, okay, yeah. So, yeah, uh, we get another scene of Baird uh, with the communists where they explain exactly who they are. They're all writers that have uh, feel they've been unfairly compensated for their work. They never see any profits or residuals from the, the work that they do, even though those movies make tons and tons of money. Uh, they are often underpaid. And so they're doing this direct action to get, uh, you know, to redistribute some of that wealth back, back, back towards them. Um, at least for now, that's what they're saying. Um, uh, next, we, see, we get a couple uh, of scenes of Mannix kind of uh, setting on some of these issues, uh, figuring out the Deanna situation with um, Joe Silverman, just a really hilarious performance from fucking what's his face god i i, I forgot his name already oh uh, jonah jo- uh, Goldberg. yeah um uh who is jonah sorry it's it's jonah, jonah hill. hill yeah 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 um uh yeah playing uh joe silverman um who is essentially they end up describing him as a professional person which is this whole scene is very funny he's essentially an actor in a different way for the studio he takes up legal liabilities he like 
whenever they need a person to take a fall he he spent six six uh six months in prison for someone else um uh and uh Deanna keeps asking and keeps mentioning uh oh but is he reliable and he uh his response at first is i'm bonded miss uh he's a notary he he does it all for 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 the studio um he's almost kind of like the a a sort of uh perfect version of the cog for the studio right like what the studio would wish all of its actors were this this compliant probably um uh we get another scene of Mannix with the Lockheed guy where he's inviting him back for dinner same day just to be like hey let me sweeten this pot and I feel like here's where I think he messes up um because he tells him like okay it's a 10-year contract you're going to divest and then you can retire it sounds like a pretty sweet deal on on paper obviously like you work for 10 years and then you're good because you Lockheed's gonna be huge. The those stock options are gonna be great. You're gonna be able to live off that for the rest of your life. Um, but aside from like having called him back and like bad mouthing, he keeps like he's saying that he won't, and then bad mouthing the cinema, which obviously like he loves. Like Mannix loves that industry, so it's like mistake number one. But mistake number two to me here is that he he offers him a drink and then a cigarette. Uh, even though earlier in that day he had mentioned that he's not, he's trying to quit smoking. Um, and this is, this is, I really do feel like that what ends up, why he ends up making the decision he ends up making is because of his insistence there at like what Mannix sees, what Mannix sees as a, as a vice, like as this one specific vice being like, that's not, that's not good. Right. Oh really? I I think it's much more. I think it's more simpler that they pitch the job as being easy, and he likes being he likes it being hard. Well, and like well, the notion of if we skip ahead here to the to the the last scene where he's in the confessional talking to the to the to the priest one last time. It's been twenty seven hours, uh, and he talks about this job offer that he has. Right. Um, let me see if I can find the exact. Uh, spot um because he says um he describes the lockhead job as an easy one not a bad job which first of all is hilarious because he's been shown the fucking photo of an atom bomb and he's like it's not a bad job but we we know this that's not that's not how that's not how he views the world right or what it means to be a to, to work for an employer exactly and what he what what the priest kind of responds to him is like uh, God wants us to do what's what's right, and what he sees, um, like basically what he sees as as right here, doesn't have to do with whether or not Lockheed is morally good. But what's right, what he thinks is right, right? Like is he's stuck on this his his where he's drawn his moral lines, and the cigarettes thing is the big one that he in an earlier scene he talks with his wife in that one scene about making this decision and the the suggestion that she gives is basically just that you know what's right right so it comes back to that specific phrasing of like what he thinks is morally correct and it has nothing to do with what the jobs actually do but whether or not he can fit his moral paradigm within the job mm-hmm. 
right? Like, and the the guy like keep continuously pushing, like, you want that cigarette? Like, you want that drink? Uh, to him is the line that he won't cross. It's, I don't know. I mean, I, to me, it feels I guess like I just a don't. Very, I just, I guess, I just don't believe him. Like, we call it Catholic guilt. Like, I called it performative because right. that's what it is. Like, does he actually? think having the cigarettes or the drink is bad or he's been told and then he uses that as a I think that's, is it actually a moral compass or is it just that's what I tell myself as a moral compass because right. actually I don't really think for myself at all <laughs> right right like that, that that is what he tells himself at least right is that yeah this is this is the reason I'm making this decision um because I'm trying to quit <laughs> even though he's seen smoking multiple times throughout this movie um again the contradictions within <laughs> our morality and what we actually do um um after that scene at Joe's uh the the movie starts to kind of wrap up all these different threads in a very uh interesting way uh and this is actually honestly kind of one of my favorite this is this is where it becomes one of my favorite Coen Brothers films because the way that these things resolve themselves are mm-hmm. always one step removed from the actions that Mannix has taken this in this movie. Mannix has got the ransom money and sent it out, but that's not the reason they get Baird back. They get Baird back right. because he happened to tell Hobie and Hobie happened to see the suitcase and in seeing that suitcase, like, like goes on his own to go, quote unquote, rescue Baird, uh, realizing that uh, him talking to like it's always like one he's like he's like at the center of all these decisions, but he's never he hasn't actually right. directly done the thing. Like this is similar to a moment where he's talking with his wife and he says, "Oh shit, I forgot to call the, I forgot to call the coach." And so he played, so our kid played at shortstop. He's like, yeah, and he loved it and it was great. And he mutters to himself, oh, it worked itself out. And it kind of feels like all of these things that he's like starting to invest, he's keeping an eye on, end up just kind of working themselves out aside from him, his direct actions. Like the money didn't matter. Under, do you think that undercuts his conception of himself in the world? Or do you think it reinforces him his belief that like, there's a divine will and purpose to yes. all this that surrounds this him. And he is just instrumental in it. For Mannix, it it, def- it definitely feels like he believes, like, oh yeah, like if I hadn't, like this this ended up working out, but only because I was there to push the certain dominoes in the right direction. Even though right. ultimately the the Thora I helped ish- myself and the Lord did the rest. Right, exactly. Yeah. The Thora <laughs> issue, the Thora issue goes away just because it happened to be Bert who happened to be a commie, which is worse than being gay, right? Like, this is, there happened to be that hierarchy, because he didn't actually end up figuring out how to get Thor to, he just pushed that off. Um, the the issue with Deanna goes away, because Deanna ends up just marrying Joe Silverman, because she thinks he's a reliable man, and she's like, well, I'll just marry him, right? And they didn't even have to go through the whole rigmarole that they were trying to set up. Uh, like, it's again, a step removed from what he had originally planned or what he, what the actions he was actually taking. Um, a Baird, yeah, Baird being picked up by Hobie. Um, the Hobie issue also 
just working out because <laughs> the Hobie issue might hopefully a new spinoff film by the Coen brothers yeah. in, in in the future. And that one gets up, ends up getting just fixed by like the fact that they have to continue. Like the system has to keep moving. So the director eventually has to figure out a fix. It's not necessarily going to be a good one, but Mannix ends up not doing anything about that at all. Other than being like, it has to happen. Just being the guy who's there saying that it has to continue the way it's been set forth by the studio head, right? That, that's such a good. That's such a good uh, payoff bit by yeah. the end when you get to watch the footage. The footage, and it's and it's not the original line. They spent so much time trying to make work. <laughs> we're, we're just we're so simple. Uh, <laughs> it's complicated. Very very good. <laughs> yeah, I, I yeah I was because oh, you're waiting for it. Yeah, and the fact yeah. the payoff being so different is. Uh. Beautiful. Uh, it was it was really, really good. Beautiful. Uh also throughout this whole time, he set like from Ho- from Hobie suggesting that maybe it was an extra, he sets this like line of inquiry going down where the director of uh Hail Caesar is looking at the extras, finds the extra that is actually that like was seems kind of sketchy, found the guy who had the truck. That line of questioning, none of nothing happens with that. None of that ends mm-hmm. up mattering at all. Um, and the, the, at one point when he, uh, he's like, uh, talking to his assistants about how far Walt is going down that line of inquiry, he's like, Walt's a good, Walt's a problem solver. He's a good man. Right. It's like Walt is stepping in and like doing the things that he, Mannix, uh, feels like will get to a resolution. They end up not need, not mattering at all. Right. But what is, important is that Walt is taking initiative for to keep the to keep the company going. He's like, this is all outside of the purview of what a director should be doing, but it's good for the company. And so Mannix sees that as a ultimate good, right? Um it's, it's in some ways what you're uh, pitching is that this movie is like the anti-Fargo in which Fargo is a bunch of characters continually making questionably poor choices yeah. to compound their previously poor choices yes. to just dig themselves deeper into a hole. When if they just sort of step back at the start after their after their first choice i don't know i don't know if it's a happy ending but it's it's not as bad as where we end up at the end and a lot of what here is a person being rewarded for not taking direct action this is this is why it's it's like it's like the anti-coen brothers it's like the decisions that are made by these characters end up like like the decision made by the main character instead of compounding all these all the all the problems are being compounded kind of separately and then they all figure themselves out outside of the purview of the main character right like the main mm-hmm. in another Coen Brothers movie you're exactly right that's what would happen he would make mistakes or it would compound in a way where people are making mistakes uh but it all kind of worked itself out magically <laughs> somebody's dead at the end of the movie <laughs> right exactly and i kind of love that as this sort of like um uh, partially a pastiche of like movie making, right? Movie magic, hiding all of the wrinkles of like real life where these things would have had to been figured out in a different way to like making this grand epic about film and how all of it kind of gets figured out because it is, it had to be. You had to make the movie, you had to keep the production, like we were talking early on, this sort of production machine had to keep rolling for it to function. Um, and this well, and it's, is and it's interesting because the the way the reason they can get away with just swapping actors and just making it work is that there's also an element here where audiences didn't have a choice, yeah. right? Like the reason the fat reason the factory line works is because it's not that audiences couldn't be discerning. There wasn't an alternative, right? right? Like you know, you it's, go to the you movies. Know, these days, 
Right. Like that is, and what's there is what's there. It's like, it's like, you know, the early days of TV, you turn on the box, what's on the box is what you watch. And so the reason it can be so formulaic, the reason you can bury actors and writers is because what matters is just that there's something on the box, whether it's a big screen or a small screen, because it won't be later until, you know, and then there's all sorts of other, you know, controlling elements that, that come into, you know, modern film and television making. But at least in this era, it is just important that that, the pink ooze gets out in, out of the tube. Uh, mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what it looks like. It just needs to show up. There is one thing that Mannix does that I think has a direct uh, influence since at the very end when he finds Baird and Baird is talking about, or when Baird comes into his office and Baird is talking about, these guys, uh, it's all in this book, Capital, with a K. <laughs> <laughs> just a, again amazing performance from Clooney um, and he like picks him up and like slaps him across the face and gives him this this speech about uh, 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 you want him to drop this in honestly. yeah I think uh, about about uh, why he needs to shut up and forget about yes. all this you, you listen to me Buster, to me, Buster. Nick, Nick Skank in the studio, studio been good to you and to everyone else who works here if I ever hear you bad-mouthing Mr. Skank again, it'll be the last thing you say before I have you tossed in jail for colluding in your own abduction. Eddie, I wouldn't, I would never do that. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> you're gonna go out there and you're gonna finish Hail Caesar. You're gonna give that speech to the feet of the penitent thief and you're gonna believe every word you say. <laughs> you're gonna do it because you're an actor and that's what you do. Just like the director does what he does and the writer and the script girl and the guy who claps the slate. You're gonna do it because the picture has worth and you have worth if you serve the picture and you're never gonna forget that again. I won't forget Eddie. Damn right you won't. Not as long as I run this dump. What a moment. Yeah, just like... Like, like, it's not that... Like, it's it's good performance across the board from Brolin, but this is why Brolin gets this part, is is the scene right here. Uh, Why why he needs to be be the one uh, to deliver this. Because, like, the burning zeal... Mm-hmm. Uh, that runs through it's 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 like a portrait of a mad saint, right? Uh, but the the other thing is that it's an, a really interesting answer to like we we know that the Bradley Clooney's character is right. He has seen behind the curtain. He sees what this machine serves and who yeah. who profits by it. But the thing he mistakes here is that like Maddox doesn't care about that. I, I think Maddox is on the level in terms of he serves this craft. He serves yes. the picture. He doesn't, doesn't even necessarily see himself as the servant of, uh, skank skank skank's role is to enable the picture to be made. Yeah. Uh, but in a weird way, like you got Mannix here articulating the position of like, you know, the, what, there's this, there's a lot of nostalgia for the old studio system. And I think in part, because like as industrial as it was, it also ran on the fact that there were a lot of like movie people, in that business and Mannix's response is like on a spiritual level. My role here is to, to be a movie guy, but also like a servant of the picture in, yeah. in well, there, much there's that, that I'm line the servant of God. When they're, when they're, when they're consulting with the different religious figures to go over the, the script. And, and on one hand of the broad thrust of that scene is like, like, can everyone just sign off on this? Are we going to piss anyone off? Yeah. But also there's uh, an exchange in which uh, somebody points out like, well, I mean, the story's already in the Bible. And, you know, uh, you know, he points out, well, sure. But the way that people are actually going to engage with the text is is the picture we make. And so I think, 
you know, even specific, you know, uh, whatever his religion is aside, he has this spiritual belief that films are important and yeah. like are how people interact with all sorts of stories that are, you know, it is, it is, it is supplanted, you know, the book as the medium that the broader culture engages with. So yeah, you can write it down. Good for you. It doesn't matter until <laughs> we put it on set and shoot it. Yeah. And I think that certainly, um, you know, is, is a foundational to why he is so, you know, uh, essentially a zealot for, yeah. you know, the, this is, this is the, the picture thing, as a medium. This is the thing he really has faith in. This is the, 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 this system, this studio is what he believes in, right? And what he thinks is right and good, right? Like that's why he stays. That's why he doesn't take the other job. That's why, uh, he has this, this particular zeal, uh, and understands like, he doesn't really seem to um he, there's no argument against the things that Baird is saying other than they are seen as bad mouthing right pointing out that it, capital and like the way that capitalism works it's not about arguing against that it's just like get your do- job done i don't care yeah. and you have to like go do these things. And what's really, he says this line, right? Like, uh, um, you're going to give that speech at the feet of the pen and the thief. And you're going to believe in every word you say, um, that speech, like a lot of fucking stories about Jesus, like is, you know, like this happens all the time. And especially during this time, there was like a lot of speculation that one of the reasons you see a lot of these, uh, sort of uh, kind of grand uh, like Christian epics is that Jesus' stories have a lot in common with like uh, Marxist ideals, right? Like, you know, sharing uh, kind of uh, a, a love for all uh, men as equals and all of that is like just a tick off of uh, the sort of ideals that people wanted to push during the Red Scare but couldn't say, right, if they were actual communists. Um, and like, if you listen to that, that, that speech again, I might, I might also drop that one in. I didn't write this whole one down, but there's a lot of lines about like, he didn't see, you know, he didn't see a Roman and a slave. He just saw men, right? Like, and like was giving to everyone equally. Um, uh, in some ways it's kind of, it is kind of repeating the things that he had learned about, you know, the body politic in the in the in the writers' room, but under this guise of uh, uh, of the speech uh, that was written for him, and at the end he forgets the last line. If we had, but and he can't remember the word, and it's faith, because ultimately he doesn't actually believe any of the things he's saying. Right? He is an actor who's been given lines, who's been given a script, and that's the same way that he picked up on. Uh, all of the the teachings, yeah, like he's easily beaten out of those teachings by two slaps across the face and a very stern uh, uh, speech from Mannix. And it's like he never, he didn't, it didn't sink in as far as belief. It sunk in to the point of, oh, I can re, I can recite these things back, right? It didn't actually click with Baird uh, because he doesn't actually believe because he's just an actor and it's just kind of making his way through this you know, doing this thing that he can do well. Um, but uh, honestly, this speech is like the best acting that Baird does in the whole mm-hmm. movie, which is amazing. It's truly spectacular how good Clooney, 
Like some of those earlier ones. He turns it on. He turns it on. Like Clooney turns it on for that speech where earlier Baird scenes are like, okay, he's he's, he's charming or whatever. But like here, it's like he's fully, it's so beautiful. It's, um, yeah, it's such a wonderful uh, moment, I think. (laughs) It just really I wonder if there's something to be made also of the fact that like, you know, one of the reasons there's this this boom of these movies like this uh, in this era is also in part because, uh, you know, they supposedly they are viewed as serving an anti-communist purpose as well because, right. uh, you know, behind the Iron Curtain, like, uh, you know, effectively it's an anti-religious uh, mm. regime. It's all it's all material. It's all ra- it's all rational. Uh, you know, a lot of the uh, faiths, if not like, uh, you know if not being outright like persecuted or at least like shut down, uh, like they, they're at least like not allowed as part of the, you know, public discourse uh, and spaces like that. And so you do end up with this, this crop of movies in this period that serve two purposes. One to showcase what the studio system can do. The TV still, and will not be able to for some time, which is like show real spectacle. Yeah. Uh, but two, this idea that these stories being religious are sort of inherently anti-communist. Like uh, the movie that they're making, uh, Hail Caesar, is I, I'm pretty sure it's like a very filed off uh, Quo Vadis, uh, which is a movie they make about a Roman centurion who you know finds uh, you right. know you finds right. faith uh, in the time of Nero, but. You know, one of the things that, you know, as you, as you point this out, the, the funny thing is that both these trains of thought that Barrett has had, like, shallowly imprinted on him, because mm-hmm. that is his nature, like, trend toward this, like, universality and collectivism. Um, and I don't know, they're put in opposition to each other in this film, but, like, through Baird, there's kind of a unity there, but the connection is missed. It's not it's not bridged. Yeah. Uh, in, in the end, uh, and uh, you know, it's I don't know quite what they're doing with that, but it's as you pointed out, like it's a it's a note I find interesting. I, I mean, I think one of the things is that like the reason that meaning making in this film and like under capitalism is similar to the communist rhetoric, like what Carter was talking about with like you know the basic themes of like giving the people right. I mean, that's part of my whole thing with Mannix's character. Mannix finds his labor fulfilling, right? Like that labor can be fulfilling and can be what gives someone's life meaning is something that Marxism does argue. It is also something that capitalism argues in a just slightly different way. Mm-hmm. And 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 the distance between those points is is so small because as what is established previously, the dialectic is a progression. And and that these two things are similar is not contradictory at all through the framework of these are this is a progressive system, a system that progresses forward. It makes sense, Um, which is also part of like why this film feels to me about about the end of empires. Right. It is about the end of a particular system of, of film production. It is about a film that is set in Rome. It is about a man who exists at the decline of an empire and their transition from one mode of production to another and choosing to do something, create some meaning at that point of transition. And, and I think that, you know, that is the like real victory of Mannix and why Mannix is like the protagonist of this movie um, is because he is able to bridge that by creating meaning for himself in a way that Baird can't, he can't, he does not create meaning for himself. 
but is it a victory? Because so when I come away from this movie, I also find Mannix a bleak. Like I fundamentally, I find like the, him kind of a bleak character uh, mm-hmm. in, in mm-hmm. the end. In part, just because like I very much recognize his style of self-denying catholicism i had a (laughs) a lot of folks like that in my family uh but also like you know to the point of him being he's investing all this meaning and value in a system that is collapsing and it is collapsing in part because there are these like contradictions rotting it from within uh and at the end he's given you know You'd say in some ways, like in his worldview, like is Baird a messenger, like sounding a warning to him that he ignores is the life raft to Lockheed in some ways. Also a <laughs> this is this is your way. This is your way out. You don't have to be here for the the for the, you know, the, the temple to fall down around you. And he chooses to stay in. Uh, and, and we do know that like, you know, his time, his time is ending. And we do know that in a lot of ways, like, you know, in some ways, like the speech, the, the picture as worth, you have worth, you serve the picture can be inspiring, but also like deeply bleak. Yeah. And in the end, like, I think he certainly, I think feels like he wins a victory. He has done good labors. I think as I come away from the film, uh, I feel much sadder about the film I've seen. It, it yeah, to the point of like the fact that the industry is falling apart. He, as a fixer, seems to just do whatever it has to be done, and sometimes that includes just sending a hundred thousand dollars in ransom. A hundred thousand dollars in ransom that ends up at the floor of the fucking ocean. Uh, like it does not matter that money did not need to be sent and only technically through the fact that uh, 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 Hobie saw the briefcase right but like the money itself like that that seems like a lot of money right Like, and maybe it isn't maybe I'm uh, what, what year is it what 19, year is it 1951 alright I'm gonna look I'm gonna do some currency conversion <laughs> Keep, continue yeah cause like if if it, it feels like the end goal is make the film happen no matter what, even to the detriment. And here's another here's another contradiction. Early on, he's talking to director Walt about where they're at. How much can they do without Baird? Right. Uh, oh, we're on stages five and fifteen. Like we have the brazier scene next, and we have uh, the final scene at the end uh, about um, about to be filmed. We need Baird for that. Um, all right, well, then how much would it cost to shut down? Right. Which I assume, I guess, means that if if they're making the right call, it must have cost more than $100,000 to shut down for a day. Um, but the, the, what's funny about that, that scene is that Walt goes into talking about, uh, hazard pay. 380 an hour for the people that are on the crucifixes in that scene, uh, which seems like such a small amount of money to be the thing that you bring up when you're talking about we're gonna have to shut down because one of our stars. But they said he said 380 an hour, right? Yeah, 
Yeah. Canadian hour is $4,355. No, no, $3.80. No, $3.80. Oh, $3 okay. Well, <laughs> that becomes way too optimistic. <laughs> it's like $4,000. Yeah, $43. Not that much. Whereas $100,000 turns out to be uh, one. Uh, one point uh one four million dollars. Um, so uh, spectacular amount of money just tossed to the wind, well, which is very funny to me. It, it is, but it's also like it, it's a spectacular amount of money to be tossed in the wind. But like even at the scale of modern, a lot of modern film production, yeah, petty cash, right? Yeah. If your if your film is bringing three hundred and fifty <laughs> million dollars, petty? who gives a, who gives a fuck about one point one four? Like like yeah, like yeah. truly, and like that's again uh, the absurdity for me is the point. Like the, the mm-hmm. that that you try to create meaning within the absurd is the point of the film for me. And that like I do I think that Mannix comes to do I like the conclusion that Mannix comes to? No, I agree. It is bleak. But that every it's not just Mannix that m- several characters in this movie are capable of finding meaning in spite of the absurdity of decline when you cannot contribute to what comes next is mm-hmm. is I think like the the core of this movie yeah yeah totally um uh well i think that'll do it for for this episode uh if anyone else has any other last thoughts um but if not then i think that'll wrap us up here uh who's next in line i believe it is renata 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 Renata, do you have, actually, real quick, you know, I'll do the plugs. You can follow us on Twitter at Waypoint. You can go check out our videos at youtube.com slash Waypoint Vice. And you can follow me personally on Twitter at A underscore Cotto underscore appears. Rob, where can people find you? Rob Zachney on Twitter. Patrick? At Patrick Kloppick. Ren? At Ren or Raven. And uh why don't you go ahead and let us and the listeners know what what will we be where will we be going next time on my turn? Hail Caesar is about the decline of the American film industry, hmm. is about a transitional point uh in an empire, right? And and the complicated and, and weird things that happen then and, and the art produced at that transition point, right? Mm-hmm. And so I would like to bring us to the end, the odd end of a different uh, system of film production and a different empire with Andre Tarkovsky's 1982 film Nostalgia, the first movie he produced outside of the Soviet system. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> Hell yes. Okay. <laughs> When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. 
For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.